the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Bob Fratt's authority on AM 1420. The answer. It is indeed the Bob Fratt's authority. Good morning to you. Thank you for joining us at seven minutes past the hour of nine o'clock on this Tuesday, the 16th morning of the 10th month of the year of our Lord, 2018. We've got a very, very nice show lined up for you today. Coming up, you're going to want to be around at 935. Trust me on this one. A half an hour from now, we're going to talk with uh, Mark Meckler. Mark Meckler is... Um, a phenomenal individual who is uh, one of the co-founders of the, the uh, Tea Party movement, the uh, Tea Party Patriots movement nationally. But more than that, and more importantly than that, Mark Meckler also founded the Convention of States Project. The Convention of States Project is an extraordinarily important one. Uh, what it is, is it is an opportunity for Americans to come together under Article 5 of the Constitution and, yes, indeed, have a full convention of the states and essentially take the government back from the or I'm sorry, take the country back from the government. It, it, just very simply stated, to take the country back from the government. It's something that more and more Americans are revealing that they want. They want a smaller federal government. They want more local control. Almost two-thirds of Ohio voters favor the state joining the states. There are currently 12 states that have called for an Article Five convention of states which would promote uh, propose amendments designed to limit federal spending, federal power, and specifically over the states uh, and American citizens uh, and to establish term limits for U.S. congressmen and, and other appointed federal officials, including judges and federal agency bureaucrats. It would drain the swamp, is what it would do. And, and just in short, descriptive terms, it would drain the swamp. And it is uh, a very, very large undertaking. A very large undertaking. As noted, so far only 12, and I say that, you know, 
carefully because um, just a few short years ago, you didn't have 12. You have 12 now. This is some very, very important work that is being done. And uh, this movement is growing. There is no turning it back. This movement is growing. More and more Americans are saying we need to take advantage of the opportunities given us by our founding fathers uh, via Article 5. Uh, and we need to take our uh, we need to take our country back, and I completely and fully support the convention of the states. It's a national effort again, but it has to be done at the state level if that makes any sense. Each state has to decide for itself to be a part uh, to call for an Article Five um, uh, convention. And this is, uh, it's, it's essentially called an amending convention. The Convention of States movement has 3.6 million volunteers and supporters right now through all 50 states. 12 states have passed an identical resolution to call on Congress to set a time and a locate for the, a location for the convention. I had, um, uh, Mark on a couple of years ago when they were doing a, essentially a mock or a, a practice run, if you will, convention of the states to show exactly how this would work in Washington, D.C. And it was tremendously successful. So the movement is growing, and we're going to talk to Mark Meckler about where things stand now. So that's coming up at 9.35 at 10.05. If you didn't get enough of him yesterday, you've got more of him today. My friend, the brilliant Peter Kersenow, back for round two. And as long as I'm there, I might as well go ahead and say this. Thank you, Pete, so much. If you're listening this morning in your law offices, Excuse me. If you are listening in your uh, law office this morning, uh, Pete Kirsten, now thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule to uh, sit down and educate and inform and enlighten uh, all of our listeners yesterday sitting in for me. Really, really, truly appreciate that. It's a treat for everyone listening. Uh, that I can tell you. If I'd been in a position to listen, I certainly would have. But of course, if I'd have been in a position to listen, I would have been in a position to host. <laughs> so, uh, Pete, thanks so much. And I asked Pete uh, yesterday evening, I said, hey, Pete, how'd it go? He said, impossibly fast. The two hours do fly by on this program. And I said, well, I said, do you want to, uh, do you want to skip this week as far as your Tuesday appearance? And she just had two hours. And he said, nope, I want my spot. <laughs> and so uh, naturally I said, done, confirmed. So Pete Kirsten, I will be back to talk about what I'm about to talk about right now. He'll be here at 10.05, 10.10 for that. And that is trying to decide on my favorite nickname. I can't decide in the wake of Elizabeth Warren's unbelievably tone-deaf, ridiculous response and reaction to the criticism she has received for her phony Native American heritage story that she's been telling since she was in her mid-30s and she was trying to get a job at Harvard. I don't know if I like Focahontas better, as in F-A-U-X, faux, phony, fake, Focahontas, or Liawatha. Or a new favorite that came out last night, and I saw it online this morning, Fraudazuma. There are a lot of different choices here to talk about Elizabeth Warren and her lies about her Native American heritage. This is simply staggering. And what's more staggering is not the fact that she took a DNA test, which proved that she was not Native American. What's staggering is that she rolled it out to the media yesterday, who picked it up and ran with it as if it were truth, suggesting, see, this proves I am Native American. That's what's staggering about this. She has been lying for years, claiming to be Native American, accepting the uh, title of first woman of color. <laughs> woman of color. 
to be on the faculty uh, at, at, uh, at Harvard. I want you to think about that for a second. She claimed to be a woman of color. She took the DNA. In fact, let me go back. I want to, I want to do this more chronologically rather than hit everything that was done yesterday. Let me play for you this uh, hilarious clip, and it really is hilarious. This is Elizabeth Warren. In an interview, uh, uh, in, in a segment that was called Heritage and Harvard, What Defines a Native American, she was on NECN, uh, uh, a network called NECN, and she was being interviewed and she was talking about how traumatically difficult it was for her parents to get married because her father's parents were racist against what would go on to be her mother because she was a Cherokee Indian. Listen to this story. And for some reason, that story is not audible. Uh, I'm going to have to work on that. I don't know why that is. We've got everything. Oh, here it is. Apologies. Apologies. One button button had to be pushed that was not. Here we go. Wrong about what it is, I believe. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's start there. Tell us what Okay. My mom and dad uh, were very much in love with each other, and they wanted to get married. And my father's parents said, absolutely not. You can't marry her because she's part Cherokee and she's part Delaware. And... Um, after fighting it as long as they could, my parents went off. They eloped. It was an issue in our family. Can you hear the emotion in her voice? Can you hear the phony emotion in her voice? And they fought it as hard as they could, and they eloped because love had to win. But their parents said, you can't marry. Dad's parents said, you can't marry her. She's part Cherokee and part Delaware. Really? Exactly what part would mom have been? One five hundred twelfth Cherokee. I mean, there's so many different levels. So anyway, she made it appear as though this is recency in terms of her lineage, that in terms of her ancestry, her mother, her mother was a Cherokee Indian or actually a part Cherokee and part Delaware Indian or Native American, if you will. And that that is what made her such a, you know, believer in her Native American heritage, so much so that she was asked to contribute to a cookbook. A cookbook based on Native American recipes. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but you kind of have to laugh. The only people really aren't, aren't laughing are Cherokee Indians. Cherokee Nation has risen up to say this is ridiculous. She is by no means in any way, shape, or form one of us, and I am offended that she is trying to use our heritage and our culture to try to in some way advance her own causes. Now, we know she tried to advance her own causes when she uh, tried to get that job on the Harvard faculty and did so by claiming to be Native American. And we know she has continued that lie ever since, leading to all of the nicknames that I just ran down. We now know that she is trying to double down on that lie because she's going to run for president in two years. In 2020, in the summer of next year, she will announce. So she has to get this part out of the way. So she decided to take a DNA test. Kind of. Sort of. Except the problem is she took a DNA test that didn't include any Native American DNA. Let's hit this part of the story. The Stanford University researcher who studied Senator Elizabeth Warren's DNA sample did not use Native American DNA samples to compare it to. 
buried deep within the Boston Globe story yesterday that told the tale of how Liawatha truly does have uh, some strong uh, evidence of Native American ancestry. Buried deep within the story is the admission from the researcher at uh, Stanford that the DNA sample did not actually use Native American DNA to determine her dubious claims of Cherokee ancestry. Instead, Carlos D. Bustamante, a Stanford University professor and expert in the field, who won a 2010 MacArthur Fellowship, also known as a Genius Grant, for his work on tracking population migration via DNA analysis. According to this expert, he used not Native American DNA to compare to Elizabeth Warren, but DNA from Mexico, Peru, and Colombia. He used that to stand in for Native Americans. That's because scientists believe that the groups Americans referred to as Native Americans came to this country via the Bering Strait about 12,000 years ago. But these were not Cherokee DNA samples, Delaware uh, uh, Native American DNA samples, or any others that could be conclusively proven as Native American. So her Native American DNA test did not include Native American DNA, which makes all of what we're talking about now sadly irrelevant. However, using the non-Native American DNA, even acknowledging that, okay, let's run with this and say it's as close as we can get without using Native American DNA, what were the results? The results? Elizabeth Warren has about, uh, uh, is, there's a chance that she is up to one 1,024th Native American. Again, this is not using Native American DNA. One 1,024th. Let me give you a little perspective and a little context on that. My wife has long described herself well, I shouldn't say described herself. She has never identified herself. Just in talking with our children about you know their heritage, she has she has pointed out that she is about one eighth Cherokee Indian. All right, my wife's mother's father's mother. So let's do that genetically. There, in other words, her great grandma. Okay, her grandfather on on her mom's side, her grandfather's mother was full-blood Cherokee Indian. That lineage from great-grandmother to uh, grandfather to mother to my wife makes her, according to what she's been explained, one-eighth Cherokee. Pretty small percentage, right? One-eighth. Something she has never, ever considered that would make her Native American. And a woman of color, because my wife is simply a Caucasian woman. In the same way that Elizabeth Warren is a Caucasian woman. My wife has one-eighth, one-eighth Cherokee blood. Elizabeth Warren has one 1,024th Native American blood, according to this Sample, which really can't even be taken seriously because it didn't use Native American DNA to compare. One 1,024th. If Elizabeth Warren can be contributing to Native American cookbooks called Pow Wow Chow, if she can be designated as the first woman of color, (laughs) what color? White. 
the first woman of color uh, uh, on the Harvard faculty, if Elizabeth Warren can claim Native American heritage in the way that she does at 1-1024th, then my wife could move on to a gosh darn reservation right now. But you know what she doesn't do? She doesn't want to move on to a reservation because she's white. She's not Native American, even at one-eighth. This is comical. And the only thing even funnier is what the left is doing to celebrate this and saying, Aha! She proved it. She's Native American. Oh, goodness gracious. 922. we got a lot to do. Let's get out and come back in again on AM 1420, The Answer. Sweet made by hand. On our days made in Japan. A really, really great tweet on this from David French. David French is a never-Trumper, by the way. That's okay. He's going to be what he's going to be. He's a senior fellow with the National Review Institute and a writer at National Review. Tweeted yesterday, do you want to know what media bias looks like? Warren releases DNA results that confirm that she misled employers, students, and the public for years. All too many members of the media treated it as if she had proven her claims. It is nuts. It is every bit that. They are treating it as if she had proven her claims, when in fact what this DNA test did is prove that she is not Native American in any way, shape, or form. And even if she is 1-1024th, guess what that makes her? Less Native American than you. Less Native American than me. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the fact that according to... DNA studies, and these are from experts in the field, the average American walking around today, the average American, no matter what your background is, this is on on balance, an average, the average American has roughly 0.18%. The the most important word there, or uh, uh, statistic there is zero. That's the most important digit. Zero percent but 0.18%, okay, Native American blood. That is the average person in the United States, 0.18%. Elizabeth Warren checks in at half that. 1-1024th converts to 0.09%. In other words, I am more Native American than Elizabeth Warren. You are more Native American than Elizabeth Warren. At 0.09%, she's half as Native American as the average person in America is. For crying out loud, with statistics like that, she might be 0.09% black. She might be 0.09% Hispanic. She might be 0.09% Asian. None of it makes her a minority. None of it would make her anywhere close to what that other than what she is. And what is she? She's a white woman trying to pass herself off as a minority for her own personal political advantage. She's been busted. Peter Kirstenau is going to talk more about that with us at 1010. She's been busted, and she doesn't even realize it. Coming up right after the news, Mark Meckler, Convention of the States, going to be joining us right here on AM 1420, The Answer.
934, now the Bob France Authority continues on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, a new poll in Ohio reveals what I think most of us probably already know, at least in this listening audience. We want smaller federal government. We want more control in our local governments and thus in our own hands. Almost two-thirds of Ohio's voters favor the state, joining other states. Currently, there are 12 of them in calling for an Article 5 Convention of States to propose amendments designed to limit federal spending, federal power, specifically over the states and American citizens, and to establish term limits for congressmen and appointed federal officials, including judges and federal agency bureaucrats. In a statewide poll, more than 80,000 households of likely voters responded to questions about the president's job approval and uh, their choice of U.S. senatorial candidates. Uh, and the party affiliation in favor of convention of the state show 50% Democrats, 71% Republicans, and 66% of other or no affiliation say, yes, we support a, a convention of the states. So what is it going to take to get this to happen? What is it going to take to get a convention of the states to amend the United States Constitution and revoke, if you will, some of that overreaching federal power that the government seems to have? Joining us now to talk about it is the the man largely responsible for this. Mark Meckler co-founded and served as the national coordinator for the largest Tea Party organization in the nation, the Tea Party Patriots, uh, in February 2012. So how about that? Over six years now, he founded an organization uh, called Citizens for Self-Government. And in one of their most important projects, which occurred in August of 2013, uh, he teamed with Michael Ferris to form the Convention of States that we are talking about, an effort at the state level to call for an Article 5 amending convention to take the power back from the federal government. Mark joins us now from uh, his home in California. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. I know you're up early to be here on AM 1420, The Answer in Cleveland. How are you? I'm doing great. Good to be with you today. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much. So last time we spoke about this, and I spoke with Ken Epic, who's uh, a strong supporter here in uh, in the state of Ohio, uh, we were getting prepared for and talking about a mock convention of the states. And I don't remember exactly how long ago that one that was. I want to say two years ago, but you can correct me on that. Uh, can you talk to us about the movement of the Article 5 convention since that time? Sure. Well, yeah, it was just about two years ago, September two years ago. That was held in uh, Williamsburg, historic Williamsburg. The convention itself brought together delegates from all over the country, uh, three from every state, generally legislators or retired state legislators. And what that did is it put into practice the theory of what it would look like to hold a convention. It was incredibly inspiring. I, what I saw is, is good people from all over the country rise up and, and rise to the occasion and become great people. Since then, incredible momentum now. As you said, 12 states have passed the resolution. That's over a third of the way to the 34 necessary. The endorsers just keep coming on. So you have guys like Ben Shapiro, James O'Keefe endorsed last week, Pete Coors of the famous Coors uh, Brewing Empire. So it's growing momentum all over the country now. 3.6 million people involved, representatives in every single state legislative district in the nation. We're well on our way to calling a convention. It's time to get Ohio on board. I could not agree more. Um, l- let me ask you about the pace of growth and the pace of, um, of, of, you know, this process. Because, you know, you just mentioned you have 12 states, you need 34. Uh, I'm looking at some of the endorsers of the Convention of States, uh, uh, including Governors Greg Abbott of Texas, Scott Walker, Wisconsin, Jeff Coyler of Kansas. And uh, there are four listed who are former governors, uh, Bush, Huckabee, Palin, and Jindal in Louisiana. Um, 
Why is it so hard and why is it such a slow process to get all of these governors to sign on board? Because, Mark, it would seem to me this is exactly what they should want. They should want more local control. They should want more statewide control. I would imagine you'd have 50 governors saying, really, we can get out from beneath of, under the thumb of the federal government and the, and the overreaching power that they have to determine so many of the things that happen in our states. I would think that you'd, you know, there, this would be a very easy thing to do to get governors to sign on. You know, it probably would, and I'll say it's kind of funny because we've never asked governors to sign on. All the governors you mentioned, they came to us, volunteered to be supporters. And the reason we haven't asked is, and people misunderstand the process, in the state legislatures, both houses have to pass this resolution calling for a convention of states. But unlike legislation, because it's a resolution, governors don't have to sign it. And so this is really important. So we've never gone after the governors because we don't want to confuse people in the states. We don't want to confuse the legislatures in the states. We don't want them to think that we need governor support. And so we've really never chased the governors. I think we'd have a lot more governors on board if we asked them to. Okay, that's that's good. That's a great answer. And it's good to know that because I could just imagine. And so now I'll just do the same thing, though, and I'll go to the state legislatures and say, you know, again, why in, in the last two years are we only up to 12? And I do not intend to minimize the growth. I am I'm yeah. very, very enthusiastic. And you're right. I want to help this state uh, become the 13th. But my question is, again, uh, is there arm yeah. twisting that has to be done to to get state legislatures to say, hey, we want more power of control of our state and take that away from the federal government? Because it doesn't seem like there should be. No, there shouldn't be. And I'll tell you why. And there is really just one fundamental reason. So two years ago, Good Friday, virtually every leftist group in America came out against this. It was led by Common Cause, which is the George Soros Policy Organization, Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, uh, Planned Parenthood, La Raza, every public employee. And they all came out against it. It was the largest single group press release ever signed on the American left. They're against it because they say what we intend to do is restore the power to individuals and to the states. They like power in Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, there are a small minority of folks on the right that buy into that argument and are standing with the radical left. Hillary Clinton, by the way, herself personally, publicly came out against this. Howard Dean personally, publicly came out against this. And so you have a few folks on the right in the legislatures that are standing against this and standing with the radical left. It's confusing, it's frustrating, but that's really the reason we've been slowed down. Are these people really on the right then? I mean, you know, uh, let's be real here. I mean, if you're a real conservative, if you really call yourself on the political right, um, you, you do want, you want local control. You want a minimum amount of interference and, uh, you know, and, and, and overreach from the federal government. So these people aren't truly on the right at all. Well, I would agree with you, and I think this should be actually a litmus test for folks on the right. If you don't believe in local control, if you don't believe that folks in Ohio should make decisions for those. Right now, by the way, in Ohio, 65% roughly of your state budget is controlled by the federal government. So these folks that are against this, they like the status quo that way. And honestly, when I ask them, well, what's your solution? They just stare at me. They have no solution. They believe that we're going to lose the country in Washington, D.C. They're willing to let it go down. I would agree with you. I think it's a litmus test. They're not actually conservatives. We're talking to Mark Meckler with um, uh, the convention of states. It's called we called it the Article Five Convention of States. I want to read Article Five, or at least the first sentence or two of it, and then get you to explain to people exactly what would happen here. 
The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem, uh, deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of several states, shall call a convention of propo- for proposing amendments, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as a part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of several states, or by conventions and three-fourths thereof, uh, as the one or other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress. I guess I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, Provided that no amendment, because I was looking for a period and a break point in there. I can't find one. Uh, provided that no amendment shall be, or uh, which uh, may be made prior to the year of 1,808 shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clauses in the ninth section of the first article, and that no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. So this is constitutional jargon that a lot of people don't understand and can't follow, especially when you read it fast the way I just did. Dumb it down for us and tell us exactly what that means. Yeah, and, and this is really important. It's actually the simplest article in the United States Constitution. It is linguistically the shortest article in the Constitution. What it does is it gives us the power, us the people, the power to propose amendments to our Constitution and ultimately to make those and, and ratify them. And it was intended to give the people the power. So basically the way it came down is in 1787 at convention, you get to September 15th, two days before the end of convention. Colonel George Mason stands up. He addresses the assembly. He says, we have a fundamental problem. We gave the power to Congress to propose amendments, but they'd forgotten to give it to the people acting through the states. And so you read that two-thirds of either house can propose amendments. That's how all of our amendments have come. You'll notice they don't limit the power of the federal government. And so then they put in this second clause proposed by Mason, was unanimously adopted without debate, giving the states, when two-thirds of them call, the power to propose amendments as well. So the entire point was, when the federal government gets out of control, as the founders knew it would, the people would have a remedy to rise up and to stop Congress from being out of control. Let me give you a really specific example, Bob. Sure. So, look, the the American people, by large margins, over 80% for over 30 years, have supported term limits on Congress and some sort of balanced budget amendment. Congress has not proposed those and will never propose those. That's why we have the second clause of Article 5. We need term limits. We need to put fiscal restraints on the federal government. We need to take some power away from them. Congress will never do that to itself. Mark, when you um, you know give that great explanation you just did, and it is very simplified, um, you say this uh, lets the people do this. That's, what's the people mean? What is that? Because pe- I had people last time when you uh, sure. uh, when we talked about this, and we had the uh, in two years ago when you had the the mock uh, uh, convention in uh, where was it? it was in uh, Williamsburg, in Williamsburg, Virginia. And uh, people said to me, well, can I go? Can I go? What does it mean? The people, people get to do this. And obviously there is a, there's a delegate situation there. Um, how, are, how are delegates chosen to represent the people? Because for some people, you know, they, they feel in fear that this is just the same thing that we have now. We send delegates representing us essentially in Congress to, to do our, uh, you know, to do our, our, our will and to do our bidding and to, uh, you know, and to represent us. And then they go up there and they don't do it anyway. So how do we know that the people that we delegate to go to the convention are are going to represent us and actually pass amendments to the Constitution that will be, you know, in our best interests. Sure. Well, let's just start with process. So it's what I would describe as purely federalist, which most of us who are conservatives, we believe in our federal system. That means that the, we have power in, in the United States government and the federal government, and then we have most of the power in the states is how it's supposed to be. So each state will choose its delegates or its commissioners how it sees fit. That means the legislature will make the method of choosing the delegations. They can send one 
commissioner. They can send 100 commissioners. Each state gets one vote when they go to that convention. Each delegate or commissioner, <clears throat> as selected, will be given instructions by the state legislature on what they can and can't do, <coughs> excuse me, how they may and may not vote. When they get into convention, they will debate in three subject matter areas, anything imposing fiscal restraints on the federal government, anything imposing term limits on the federal government, anything imposing scope and power limits on the federal government. When 26 states agree in that convention that something would be a good suggestion to make, and it's important we remember these are only suggestions, 26 states agree. That goes out to the states for ratification, and then it takes 38 states to ratify anything to become part of the Constitution. So it takes 34 states to agree to have the convention, but then it takes 38 for ratification from what comes out of the convention. Yeah, so that's what we would describe as a super, super majority. That's actually really important because some people say, well, what, you know, crazy stuff. Like, well, what if they decide to repeal the Second Amendment? Well, first of all, they can't even discuss it in convention, but let's assume everything goes crazy and somehow that happens. You'd have to have 38 states ratify that. And if you flip that math on its head, Bob, what it means is, it takes only 13 states to prevent something from becoming part of the Constitution. And for people like you and me who are conservatives, it means it takes the 13 most conservative states, only one house in the 13 most conservative states. In other words, nothing that limits our liberty could possibly get ratified and become part of the Constitution. So based on what you just said, Mark Meckler, uh, and, and we're joined by Mark Meckler of uh, Article 5 Convention of the States and Citizens for Self-Governance, um, what would be the likelihood that we can get 38 states to agree to ratify anything that might come out? If I'm being cynical, you know, I'm saying, you know, it, it, no, this is, it's an amazing thing to get this convention together, but but my goodness gracious, once it comes out, you have to have 38 states ratified. I mean, what if 38 states ever agreed on anything? I actually think that's the very best question. I think that's the highest risk is you get out of convention, it's hard to get something ratified. Although I'll tell you this, Bob, what I think is going to come out of convention is nothing that's going to be controversial. In other words, what you're going to get out of convention are things like some sort of balanced budget amendment. Well, over 80% of the American public has supported that for 30 years. You're going to get some sort of term limits for Congress. Again, over 80% of the American public supports that. Uh, and so these kinds of common sense reforms are the only things that can get ratified. They're the great middle of America. The only people who oppose this process are on the far fringes of either side, you know, where they kind of meet where the, you get the lunatic fringe. So I think what you're going to get out of convention are common sense notions of term limits, of fiscal restraints on government. Here's another one you're going to get. The federal government lumps all these things together in a single bill. There's something called a single subject amendment. It means every bill, only one subject. So you don't get good people forced to vote for bad things to get good things. So these are things that the American public widely supports. I don't think it's a problem to get stuff like that ratified because state legislatures just like Congress, not always filled with the bravest people. They listen to broad public opinion like that. And uh, is this the the reason for this? We need to get the broad public opinion to talk to our representatives in Columbus, Ohio, and tell them we want to be a part of this? Is this is how we get Ohio to become the 13th state? No, absolutely. Look, Ohio should be the 13th state. I, I would argue, having been in 44 states around the country, there's a lot of common sense in Ohio. I think it's a good representation of what America is and should be. If you just, I'm not talking necessarily the legislature. I'm talking the people of the state. Mm-hmm. And so this is the place where the best ideas are going to come from for the rest of the country or states like Ohio. Ohio should be on board. The way they get on board is by calling your legislator, letting them know you support the Convention of States. We're going to be there in the legislature in 19. We're going to make it happen. 
Mark, um, based on the pace of all of this, um, you know, your Citizens for Self-Government organization was started in 2012. This Convention of the States uh, organization was started in 2013, and here we are. Uh, so five years later, we've got 12 states on board. Yep. Is that the pace uh, to get to 34? Do we have to wait another 15 years, do you think, or is this picking up? What can you project? I hope to retire long before then, but no. <laughs> here's, what I would, here's what I would project. My best projection based on what we know, we've passed in, in one house or the other in another 19 states. So you have to pass in both houses in the same legislative session. And so we're way further than it appears numerically. We've got leadership on board in a bunch of states. I'm hoping that we get another, say, 12 states in 2019, finish it off in 20, and hold the convention in 21. I expect this is going to be an issue in the presidential election in 2020. Does the party that holds the the white house impact um the the uh motivation if you will for states to want to join this you know i think it does but i would say it's in a way it's neutral and and here's what i mean by that when when president trump was initially elected you had some people who said well do we really need to do this and then they saw sort of the deep state rise up against the president and the administration and try to thwart his policies i think we still see that every day and so people who thought maybe we could sit back say, no, we have to do it. I also think people are saying, well, if we could get Trump elected, then we absolutely can get this done. So it's inspired some people. Uh, and then I think if you get a Democratic administration, if you get the Democrats take over the House of Representatives, or you end up with a Democratic president in 2020, I think conservatives will be more and more unified around this idea of limiting federal power. Mark Meckler joining us from California. Last thing before you go, when the mock was held in Williamsburg two years ago, um, did they pass mock amendments that they would then mockingly, I hate saying it that way, but <laughs> the, that they would then have to uh, conceivably then get past the 38 state legislatures, et cetera? And if so, what were some of the top amendments that came out of that, if, if that's the way it was conducted? Yeah, they did. So uh, they passed out six amendments for consideration. The, the most interesting thing to me about that, Bob, was we gave them uh, a limitation because of time. We were only there for a day and a half. We told them they could pass three in every subject matter, and they ended up with only six instead of nine. To me, it was interesting how seriously they took it. They couldn't come up with six that they agreed upon. And so that shows me how seriously they took it. But they did things like they had a three-fifths amount where three-fifths of states could overrule decisions by the Supreme Court or decisions by the federal legislature. So I think that's a, I think that's a really important one in restoring the balance between the federal and the state governments. They imposed term limits on Congress. I, you know, I think they were longer than I thought they should be. It was 12 and 12. So you essentially could be there for 24 years. Uh, so they had a whole series. And if people want to know about that, they can go to conventionofstates.com. They can search simulated convention. They can watch some of the convention. They can see the proposals that came out of it. That would be a great idea, just to give people some incentive to know what could come out of this once it happens for real, as you say, targeting 2021 potentially to make that happen. Mark, listen, uh, it's great work that you do and all of your organization there with Citizens for Self-Governance and for the Convention of States. If there's any other way that I can help uh, try to turn our state and uh, you know convince some of our listeners and the constituents to talk to their representatives and bring Ohio on board, please don't hesitate to get back in touch with me, and we'll talk again soon. I appreciate it. Just have your listeners go to conventionofstates.com. Maybe I'll come and be in studio with you next time I'm in town. That sounds like a great idea. Thanks very much, Mark. Uh, conventionofstates.com. Mark Meckler, uh, organizer and founder of this uh, movement uh, out of California. It's 9.53. We'll take a time out here, come right back, get some thoughts from you on AM 1420, The Answer. Get up, get up. 
9.57 now. Thanks again to Mark Meckler for coming on from California to talk about the Convention of the States. And I'm looking at the website now. It is conventionofstates.com. You really want to check this out. And also, uh, maybe I'll tweet it. During the uh, top of the hour break that uh, that is coming up here, and that'll precede, by the way, Peter Kersenow. If you did not get your fill of Peter Kersenow and his two-hour stint guest hosting this show yesterday, you'll have him for another 30 minutes coming up at 10 o'clock. But um, um, maybe I'll do it during the break. I'm going to post the link to the Article 5 that I read. Because I read it, and I had to read it kind of fast. It was longer than I thought it was going to be, even though it is one of the shortest articles in the uh, Constitution, <laughs> strangely enough. Uh, but it is hard to follow. But if you really want to understand and follow this, I know that a lot of people, within the sound of my voice right now, a lot of people in in this listening audience are connected. You're connected to either state representatives or representatives of state representatives, whether they be communications people or staff, assistants, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, this is what it takes. This is what true grass movements are all about. It's about you and me getting out there and talking to the people in power and letting them know this is what we want you to do to represent us. If you believe that federal judges have too much power, like the federal judges who tried to block President Trump's travel ban, the federal judges who have tried to block President Trump from ending the uh, uh, TPS, if you if you uh, are, are you know are temporary protected uh, TPS, that was uh, the protected uh, illegal immigrants. If, if all of these federal judges who continue to overstep their authority rather than just interpreting the Constitution and instead legislating actively from the bench, they ought to be term limited and they ought to be able to be removed from office when they do these things. If you believe that, and that's just one part of this, is the federal judges, by the way. Also, Congress should be term limited. How long can 85-year-old Dianne Feinstein be allowed to sit in the United States Senate? continuing without any fear whatsoever of losing her seat because of the demographic makeup, the political demographic makeup of her uh, of her state. It should not be, because she can pretty much do whatever she wants without fear of having to answer to the voters. Even though technically she has to answer to voters, because she has to be up for every election every six years, there's got to be a cap on that. And to me, that cap should be two. No more than two terms in the United States Senate. For the House, cap it at three. No more than six years three two-year terms in the United States House. This is what the Convention of the States could bring about, an end to the lifelong, uh, you know, lifelong-held positions in the Congress and certainly on the benches as well. That's just part of all of this. So it is about grassroots, and it is about talking to your representatives, talking to the friends of yours who know the representatives. I see people whenever we have these political gatherings throughout uh, Northeast Ohio, and I see the same people oftentimes, and I know they're connected. And I see some of the actual representatives themselves. It's time to get in their ears and tell them. We want more local control. We want to decide our fate and our future. We don't want it decided by lifelong appointees in Washington, D.C., who may have no idea what's right for Ohio. All right, uh, news time now at 10 o'clock. We'll come back. Peter Kirsten, I will join us right here on AM 1420, The Answer. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.